0: Welcome to the Redeemer Central podcast. Redeemer Central is a church community in Belfast seeking to practice the way of Jesus and work for the peace and good of our city. For more information, please visit RedeemerCentral.com So, 30 years ago this year, Stephen and I Became parents for the first time, um, a life changing uh, experience that we continue to attempt to do as well as we can. And um, I remember I have a very vivid memory of 30 years ago they kept you in hospital a bit longer than they do these days, so I probably got home around day five. And I remember I was physically exhausted, I was emotionally all over the place, I was elated but the elation was kind of over and I was emotional and I was in this kind of oh my gosh can I keep this little package alive and um, obviously she was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen and uh, I was nervous about my role as a mum and I remember we got home we were living in London at the time and we had a tiny little flat and we walked in and years ago you carried a baby over your you know you didn't have these fancy car seats you had a kind of a it was like a bag of shopping you carried in and I remember we set her in the middle of the floor of the flat and we both looked at her and I looked at Stephen and I remember this really visceral memory and I said to him so what do we do now? Do we just wait for her to wake up? And he said, I guess so. Um, and she did. And we've done okay. And what, the reason I I want to set what I'm talking about, the the, the The meeting this week happens in the week after resurrection. And John is the only one of the Gospels that really indulges us in this week. In Matthew, it goes quite quickly from Mary Magdalene at the tomb to the ascension. Mark goes pretty much straight to the ascension. Luke talks about the Emmaus Road experience. But John lets us sit in this week and... uh, Dave talked so beautifully last week on the breakfast on the beach with Peter, Um, and if you haven't listened to that or you weren't here, please, there's real wisdom in it, and please listen to it and catch up. But today, I want to sit in this week. It's a week since the resurrection. If anything big has ever happened in your life, a wedding, a marriage, a a birth, a death, a diagnosis, something big that is life-changing... Once the elation or the shock or the joy or whatever it is that you feel initially is over, a week later, the dust starts to settle and you start to think. And you start to wonder about what was it all about? Is this going to be okay? And I guess this is where Thomas is in this passage today in John. Maybe Thomas didn't actually, we all call him Doubting Thomas, but maybe who he didn't actually believe was the other disciples. And I'm going to come back to that. Maybe what he actually wanted was to see that the resurrected body of Jesus carried the wounds. That Jesus wasn't made perfect when he resurrected, but he kept his human, broken, wounded body. And there's something utterly beautiful in that. And I think it's really quite unfair that he gets called doubting Thomas because the Gospels are full of stories of people who doubted Jesus. John the Baptist, the one who ate locusts and lived in the, the desert, he said, are you the one or should we look for another? Are you the one? Are you sure? Or, are you, or should we look for another? James, the brother of John, it's told in John chapter 7, he publicly accused Jesus of losing his mind. That's pretty much doubt right there. And in Matthew 28, as the apostles and others watched the ascension, some of them doubted. So I guess what I want to say at the beginning is, I feel a bit sorry for Thomas that he got labelled in the early days as doubting Thomas, because doubt is part of faith. And he was not the only one, and it wasn't the end of his story. He doubted and he questioned, but at the end of the passage he says, "'My Lord and my God.'" Kairos, Theos. That's who he was. Powerful, powerful story. So John, the Gospel gospel of John, those who study it deeply say that it was written over about 20, it recounted 21 days of the life of Jesus. So John really chose what he could tell us. At the very end, in verse 30, he says, there's so much more I could have told you, but this is what I wanted you to know, so that you will trust The Lord as your Saviour. And so, this story I reckon is one of the most important ones in the Gospel because Thomas somehow speaks to us all these years later about faith and about doubt and about hope. And that is what I hope we will think about together this morning. Thomas had no template for a suffering God. He thought that his God was going to come and save the world, crush the oppressor. And yet here was Jesus, on a donkey, being a friend to the Romans. He made no sense. He would no template for this suffering Christ. He was disappointed, confused, questioning, devastated. What he had expected had not come to pass. And I wonder how many of us this morning are sitting, looking at the reality of our lives and thinking, this was not what I expected. This was not what I hoped for, or I believed for. And I feel Thomas has something to say to us. And yet, when he comes to Jesus with his doubts, Jesus does not shame him, he does not judge him, he does not argue his point. He simply reveals himself, and responds to him with utter compassion. And there's something beautiful in that. And so the kindness of Jesus transforms Thomas. He heals, it heals his broken heart. And in time, Thomas goes on to be one of the first martyrs. He travels along the spice routes to India. And in a, a town in southern India now, there is a church built to honor him. And it says on over the doors, my Lord and my God. Tom, Thomas's proclamation when he spoke and saw and felt the risen Jesus so I'm going to read it from the Christian standard version just because I like this and the puppy got to it before me um, Steve who did my slides put another version on by mistake so I'm going to read it so perhaps you can just allow me to listen to listen to me as I read it to you John chapter 20 So the day after the resurrection, Mary Magdalene had gone to the tomb. She found, she met Jesus. She went to tell Peter and the disciples, and they didn't believe her. They didn't believe her. When it was evening of that first day of the week, the disciples were gathered together with the doors locked, because they feared the Jews. Jesus came, stood among them, and said to them, "'Peace be with you.' Having said this, he showed them his hands and his side." So the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. After saying this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were telling him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, if I don't see the mark of the nails in his hand, if I don't put my finger into the mark of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will never believe. A week later, the disciples were indoors again and Thomas was with them. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, "'Peace be with you.' Then he said to Thomas, "'Put your finger here and look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Do not be faithless, but believe.' Thomas responded to him, "'My Lord and my God.' Jesus said, "'Because you have seen me, you have believed.' Blessed, happy are those who have not seen and yet believe. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Amen. So, everyone has seen Jesus, all the other disciples, and Thomas doubts. He doesn't believe. He says, I want to see him for myself. I want to put my finger in his wounds, and I want to see him. And we read that there was locked doors. The door may well have opened miraculously, as it did in Acts for Peter. We don't know. But when they have this interaction, and Jesus responds to him with compassion and love and says, come and put your hands, feel my wounds. Thomas is overwhelmed and says, my Lord and my God. Commentators would say that this was the sole purpose of John's gospel, that all of us would see Jesus as our Lord and our God. And that was the purpose of him writing and choosing to tell the stories that he did. So what do we in these days learn from Thomas? What do you and I end up thinking about when we think of this week after resurrection and this engagement of Thomas with Jesus? If you think about this cultural moment that we live in, apparently in 1500 AD, faith was the expected way to understand the world. It was a default setting of society. It is not the way it is now. We live in a cultural moment of skepticism, fake news, anxiety and doubt are in the very air that we breathe and nothing or very very little feels solid and secure we are the generation who have lived through a global pandemic countless deaths we couldn't have foreseen it even though they happen every so hun- so many hundred years and so we are living in an age where we question everything where we doubt everything and we want people to prove themselves and the the word that the word faith and doubt come from is the same Hebrew word. It is two sides of the one coin. Faith and doubt go hand in hand in a journey of faith, a rich, true journey of faith. If you have never doubted or if you've never questioned, then I would wonder, are you really awake? Frederick Buchner puts it much better than me, if I can get back to it. Whether your faith is that there is a God or that there is not a God. If you don't have any doubts, you're either kidding yourself or asleep. Doubts are the ants in the pants of faith. They keep it awake and moving. (laughs) Quite classic Frederick. Ants in the pants of faith. The thing is, faith and doubt walk hand in hand. Jesus didn't shame Thomas for his doubts. He didn't tell him off. He didn't say to him no. He showed him utter compassion and love. He simply revealed himself. And faith and doubts must be our companions on the, on the road of wholeness and truth. And there's several types of doubt. There's a quote that will come up behind me from Sean Stevenson. Doubt is a virus that atta- attacks our self-esteem, productivity and confidence. Faith that you and your life are perfectly unfolding is the strongest vaccine. It's not faith that your life is hashtag blessed. It's not faith that you get what you want, or that you don't sit in the pain of loss or infertility or singleness or dreadful diagnosis or marriage that breaks down or divorce. All the things that we live We're not guaranteed anything. We are guaranteed that we are never alone. And that, I believe, is what true, deep faith rooted in the Lord is is about. And so there's types of doubt. There's factual doubt. Is this really a solid foundation? Does what I believe make sense? There's emotional doubt that happens for many of us, perhaps after loss or perhaps after a, a, something has happened in our lives that we weren't expecting, and we end up with emotional doubt. Volitional doubt is the more challenging one, and probably the one that impacts us at this cultural moment, because it is saying to us, do you care, will my will bend towards the ways of Jesus? Or is it that actually I am so self obsessed and interested in my needs that I cannot be before my Lord and my God and very often factual doubt can become emotional doubt and that eventually leads to volitional doubt and when you're in volitional doubt you are in trouble and that is when you need to seek the wisdom of others and if you think no one ever had it before read Lamentations 3 a beautiful beautiful reflection in doubt Brian McLaren has written a great book called Faith After Doubt. I have it with me if anyone wants to borrow it. And I'm going to read you one of the... Acknowledging how little we know is, I think, at the core of mature faith. What we boast of as great faith may merely be a boatload of indoctrination and overconfidence. I've lived many years under a boatload of indoctrination... Yes, you can choose to say you believe something, but whether you actually and authentically do believe it is less choosable than it seems. And Brian has written a very, very helpful book, The Slide After, and I'll maybe put it in, um, in the notes of the podcast. He has produced four stages of faith, and, and he talks about the stages of faith that we're all in, that we can start with a simple faith, That we take everything as fact and certain and there's no debate and we've no question and we may never leave that stage and some churches run on that stage it's certain it's fact there's no debate you're okay we're okay but often life challenges us and we have to move through the stages and he talks about the stage four which is a deep faith that has walked painful hard journeys and continues to hold on. And he describes it so beautifully it'll come up behind. A humble, reverent openness to mystery that expresses itself in non-discriminatory love. What a beautiful summation of what a deep religious faith can be. And if we as a community lived out of that openness to mystery that expresses itself in non-discriminatory love, how beautiful a witness would that be to everyone that we meet. And I've been thinking about, I suppose when I look at Thomas, the message that I take from this is, there is nothing wrong with doubt. Doubt is part of faith, and sometimes you just have to name it and own it and seek community and ask for revelation, and it is all there. There's a a guy that has written called Stephen Porges and he talks about polyvagal theory and it is where we are so intricately designed that we are constantly reading the room. We are constantly looking for signs that we are safe and that we are secure. And if we're not, uh, our autonomic nervous system triggers in and we go into fight or flight and he talks about how we can be triggered. And I am very aware that people can be triggered by language around faith and their experiences. But there's a woman who has written some beautiful work called Deb Dana and she talks about another theory that is the opposite of triggers and it's called glimmers. And what she says is that we all need to see glimmers every day. There are hundreds of them around us every day. I think there's a quote from her. I'm just going to flick through, there's the four stages of faith, we'd be here all day if we went through them, but it's well worth a read if you're interested in learning a little bit more and seeing where you are in this journey. But when we go to glimmers, she says, each day brings with it hundreds of glimmers, if only we have eyes to see them. And what what, uh, psychological theory will tell us is that if we start to look for things, we will see them. So it's summarized in neuro-linguistic processing. So say you're going to a meeting tomorrow. If you walk in with the idea, this is going to go well, your brain will find the evidence that it's going well and you will believe it. Because our brains get a million and a half pieces of information every day. They're constantly filtering out information. And so you walk in and think this is going to go well, you will find the evidence. So she is saying instead of looking for the triggers, look for the glimmers. Instead of looking for the doubts, look for the hope. And I want to invite us to think about that, to think about where do we see the glimmers of the Imago day, in others, in our world, in nature? Where do I see the hope that energizes me and makes me feel safe and secure in the world? Wendell Berry has a beautiful poem that he talks about practicing resurrection. And he advises us that we need to live with the wildness of surprise, We need to look for God in the unexpected places. We need to enact God's manifesto of solidarity, of friendship, of hospitality, and of prayer. And most of all, we need to dwell in the Spirit. And I wonder if we were starting to think about our doubts, and there's nothing wrong with them, and we need to name them and work them out, but I wonder, could I invite us to live as a community who look for the glimmers who look for the glimmers of hope, who look for the glimmers of the imago day in each other and in those that we meet. We saw a glimmer this morning when we prayed for Rory, giving up four weeks of his holiday and going to travel. That's beautiful. We saw, I saw a glimmer on Friday night at the long table. There's a guy who's called David who has started to volunteer with us. I don't believe he would identify himself as a follower of Jesus. But I saw a glimmer in him on Friday night. Because he went for a walk, and he found some guys on the street who were hungry, and they didn't want to come. So he came back, and he packed up takeaway boxes of the dinner with spoons, and he went and he had his dinner with them. That's a glimmer, if ever there was one. That is the Umago day in him that he possibly doesn't recognize yet. But he will. He will, because we'll call it out. We call it out in each other. And so I wonder this week, as you walk away, you live in community. Think of this wisdom of Wendell Berry. Live in the wildness of surprise. Look for God in the unexpected places. Enact his manifesto, solidarity, friendship, hospitality, and prayer. And dwell in his spirit. Dwell in his spirit. Because in him and in relationship with him, our doubts are assuaged and hope remains. I wasn't, we have time. I'd wondered if I would share a a sort of personal story of um, doubt and I, I will. And the reason I do is because I feel it, it gives you permission if you see and hear vulnerability and honesty. It gives you permission to do the same. And so about five, six weeks ago, a a very precious friend of mine left me a voice note and said, quite a lengthy voice note, but the summary of it was, have you let a little bit of unbelief take root in your soul? And the ego of mine responded as I listened to it with, no, that's ridiculous. I pray for miracles every day. I see the Lord work. I trust. I have faith. But... Wisdom told me, sit with it. Sit with it, Stephanie. And so I did. And I've realized that what I've come to realize is that, yes, I had. I'd let a little bit of unbelief come in. And I've tracked it back to where it began. And so about 20 years ago, we were part of a, a small fellowship church and in Lisburn, where we live. And uh, a big name came over. Big English name came over, great teacher. I still follow a lot of what he said. And he prophesied over us that we were about to start that day a year of favour. I can still hear his English accent. Favour upon favour upon favour for one year that started on the 18th of June and would end on the 18th of June. And so we as a community, it was like we'd been given a blank check. And we just thought, great. There was very little wisdom from our leaders. We would know that if you receive a prophecy it should be tested and and checked and there should be wisdom to it. There was a lack of that being fair. And I questioned some of it because I wasn't sure exactly what it meant or what it would outwork like. And it's fair to say the questions were not welcomed. And that happens in church a lot. It's the one place where you can't talk about the fact that you doubt your faith. That is not healthy. That is not healthy. And so I went to prayer meetings. We, we put on extra prayer nights. Um, I remember a girl who lived with singleness and didn't want to be single. We asked her to name what she wanted him to look like. We prayed for him, etc., etc., I carry real regret about some of that stuff because those prayers have not yet been answered, and that's 20 years later. A very dear friend of mine, her brother, had got a devastating cancer diagnosis at the age of 36. And he was the dad of three boys. And the message was, well, it's our year of favor. He'll be fine. And I'm glad to say he or his family never heard of this year of favor because that would have added a layer of complexity to a very difficult, painful year. And actually, when Michael died some months later, um, in the days before he died, as happens, and if you talk to anyone who works in a hospice, this is a very common occurrence. He started to see people who had already died, and he started to see what he felt was heaven. It was white, and it was beautiful, and it was peaceful. And he was excited to go there. He made his peace with the fact that at the age of 37, he was leaving his boys and his family. But I remember the night that at 2 o'clock in the morning, my friend phoned me. In those days, it was a phone in an office in the house, no mobiles. And she just cried, and we just sobbed on the phone for a period of time. at the, The sadness and the grief of that loss. And as I sat at his celebration of his life a few days later, in my heart, I thought, this wasn't supposed to happen. This doesn't make sense. And I realized that, and what I've come to realize in the last month, as I've sat with that wisdom that a friend offered me, and that provocation, if you like, was that I allowed disappointment to take root in my soul. And it's in other Christians. It's in other leaders. It was in other leaders. It was in a lack of wisdom. It was in a lack of um, biblical response to a prophecy. And I was a part of it. And I also learned to be silent and, and not speak up. And so I've realized that I've had to repent of that. I love the idea of repentance. It's so freeing. I think we should be repenting as a daily practice every day because there's always something. But the reason I I tell you this this morning is that I allowed, instead of naming my doubts or, 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 or being a bit more brave with them perhaps, or instead of taking it straight to God, I probably allowed a little bit of doubt to take root in my soul. Because it wasn't about necessarily the death of Michael. Because Michael made his peace with something that is pretty hard to make your peace with. But he did. And he is at peace. And I know that. And I've seen people healed. And I've seen all sorts of things happen. So it's not about that. But what I did was I allowed my faith in others to impact me. And somehow... Impact my relationship with God, because maybe I've allowed that to take root. And I felt like I should offer that to you today, as a, as an invitation for honesty, as an invitation for you to say to yourself, has stuff happened in my life, or have I seen stuff? That same leader, some years later, had a fall from grace, an end of a marriage, and stuff. And it just chipped away. Dave mentioned it last week. How many times, how many leaders do we see fall to sexual sin and mess? Or money, the big things. And so we need to keep humble and accountable and gentle with ourselves and with one another. And that, I think, is what I'm inviting us into. Thomas took his doubts, and I reckon Thomas's doubts were in his fellow followers. Not necessarily in God. And I've I've lived with doubts in my fellow followers. I'll own that. Because they, like me, are messed up and broken. And I want to come and finish at the end with that verse that comes in in the next encounter that Dave spoke about last week, where Jesus eventually says to Peter, don't worry about all of that. Follow me. Follow me. Don't make your life about what the others do. Follow me. And so this morning as we end and the band are going to come, I want us to do communion slightly differently because I want to invite us to think just now in these moments very quietly and peacefully. Do I need to see the resurrected Jesus and his wounds for myself? Because if you do, the table is here. Do I need to come with my doubts? Because when I come to the Lord with my doubts, his word to me is peace. No admonishing, no debate, peace. Do I need to own that at some points in my journey, I have got disappointed in other followers of Jesus? And somehow I have allowed that to impact my relationship with the Lord. And so maybe you're sitting in a season of doubt. Maybe you're sitting in a season where you have more questions than you have answers. And I would say to you and invite you to own them and name them and talk them out. And if someone closes you down with them, with an answer that doesn't work for you, find someone else. Don't just accept, dig deep into the gold that is within when we dig into the beauty and the faithfulness and the goodness of the Lord. So this morning, let's take our time over communion. Rosie has done us a beautiful, beautiful plate, and I asked her about the artwork that she'd done, and she's done seed pods on it. It'll come up behind me. Because our faith is not supposed to be kept to ourselves we're supposed to give it away and share it and i mean that is stunning so this morning as you come maybe and the band are going to start to play maybe you're coming with your doubts and jesus says peace maybe you're coming with your disappointment in others or in the lord bring them here Maybe you're coming and you need to be reminded that the risen Lord had wounds that he carried because he lived as a human and he knows what pain and disappointment and rejection is. Whatever you're coming with, the Lord is awaiting you and wants to minister to you. So just now, Dave and Dan are gonna come and share the bread and the wine with you. I'd like us to take our time to walk up to listen to the music and to think, what is it that I am bringing to the table this morning? And what do I require of the Lord? Because he is here and he is waiting. So let's stand. As we come one at a time, let's go slowly And as the words are spoken to you, imbibe them. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. So let's come. And when we've all taken and dipped the wine, then we will sing and worship. Thank you.